For years now, when it's come to what causes autism, my cheer has always been, what is it? Multiple risk factors. When? During pregnancy. How? Interaction of genetics and the environment. But I'm also honest, there are hundreds of genes, dozens of environmental factors that we know of, and thousands that we may not know about. And then the third variable that's becoming more and more of a salient question, which is sex. Males are four times more likely to receive a diagnosis. Why? Susceptibility factor by males or protective factor by females? Or does it depend? I mean, can you imagine trying to parse all these things out? Well, luckily, thanks to decades of research, there are places to start. Scientists aren't just throwing darts at the wall guessing. First, the fact that sex is even a variable now is huge, or should I say, huge. So there's that. Then, genes. Which ones? Well, if you're looking at sex differences, a gene of interest called contactin-associated like protein 2, or catnap 2, may be a good place to start. This gene has been associated with autism in humans and social behaviors and cognitive function in multiple animal models and in people even without autism. And also of interest, multiple studies have also shown behavioral features in mouse models are more profound in males compared to females with catnap mutations, possibly due to a reaction to androgens or sex hormones. I mean, that's a possibility. So here's a good place to start catnap mutations, sex, and now let's add on an environmental factor. Here's one, maternal infection. Maternal infection has been shown to be associated with autism risk. Of course, not every child with a mother who's had a severe infection or a fever ends up with autism, so it's a risk factor, not a cause, like advanced paternal age. So what happens when you mix sex and a genetic mutation and an environmental factor all together? Sarah Schaffsma of Rockefeller University and her mentor Donald Pfaff took on this question. I won't be shy about this. Autism Science Foundation was proud to fund a year of Sarah's postdoctoral fellowship, and now she's a successful young researcher in her home in the Netherlands. Yay! The study was organized into hits. So the first hit would be being male. The second hit would be having a mutation of the catnap 2 receptor. Again, this is a gene that's associated with autism. And it controls how neurons are shaped or how they develop and differentiate into different functions and then how they connect with other neurons. So can you be surprised that this is an autism risk candidate gene? Pretty much a lot of the genes that are associated with autism have similar functions. But what made this gene of interest is there was an animal model of this genetic mutation. So Dr. Fafslab and Dr. Schaffsma could easily, or at least somewhat easily, look into interactions between sex and this genetic mutation. The third hit was an exposure to an infection during pregnancy. The end question was, what happens in different behavioral and biochemical outcomes after one hit, two hits, or even three hits? I'll summarize. The three hits being male, the catnap 2 mutation, and exposure to maternal infection during pregnancy had some what are called cumulative effects and some synergistic effects. A cumulative effect means that each had some effect by themselves, but when you add them together, you get an even higher effect, like 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. This is seen in things like ultrasonic vocalizations. 
Ultrasonic vocalizations are a measure of communication in, in young animals. In other outcomes, though, like social recognition, there was a synergistic effect, meaning that one or two didn't really do anything at all, but the three together caused an effect, like one plus one plus one equals six. This shows that by themselves, being male and a catnap 2 mutation probably isn't enough to produce some of these behavioral symptoms, but perhaps a prenatal infection will push things over the edge in terms of behavioral symptoms. That's interesting enough, but what about biological features? So an important mechanism by which genes and environmental factors converge is through something called epigenetics. That means that environmental factors don't change the DNA sequence, but they can turn genes on and they turn genes off by activating little molecules on the genes or unwrapping the DNA from its corkscrew formation. When Sarah examined what was called methylation on certain parts of the catnap gene, or the way the DNA is shaped through histones, these are both epigenetic modifications, the three hits again cause disruptions. Three hits produce the biggest effects with maternal infection affecting males more than females. While being male may be a hit, it also may be something about being a female that's protective against some of the other hits. So speaking of epigenetics, there was also a paper that came out late last year that focused on this. And in this particular case, it wasn't a hidden gene we don't know about or genes that are only seen in a very, very, very tiny percentage of people with autism either. There's just a disorder called duplications and deletions of chromosome 15. People with duplications and deletions on chromosome 15 have an 80% chance of having an autism diagnosis. So this is one of those genes that's considered a rare variant. If you have this genetic mutation, there's a high probability that you'll have an autism diagnosis. It's one of those genetic causes and probably the last place you would look to see if there's a genetic and environmental contribution. However, looking at gene-environment interactions in this area was exactly what this study did. They looked at methylation in the brains of people with chromosome 15 duplications and deletions. Since there are lots of genes in this region, they found that actually 975 genes were methylated at over 600 sites. This methylation, again, is where epigenetics allows genes and environment to interact. It sets up a situation where the environmental factors may target these methylation sites and change things further. So Keith Dunaway at UC Davis and his mentor Janine LaSalle, both at UC Davis, then looked at what happens when you put this awful chemical called PCBs in cells with the same type of mutation. PCBs are one of these things, and I know I've mentioned them before, that were banned 30 years ago, but now they're still in our environment because they just sit in the soil of the water supply, they don't break down, and then they end up in our drinking water, in our food, and in our air. Just by having mutations on chromosome 15, there's changes in DNA methylation. And the same thing with PCBs separately. There were these methylation changes associated with PCB exposure. The chromosome 15 changes and the PCB changes affected the same overlapping genes that, of course, are involved in brain development. In addition, they also found that there was even more genes of interest turned off than by either alone. So again, they had overlap, 
But now there's also this whole new set of genes that had these new epigenetic changes involved. And of real interest, and you're going to want to listen to this, there was a new mutation popped up on chromosome 22. So this is actually a new mutation of a gene, not epigenetic turning on or turning off, but changes in DNA sequence that were de novo or new. And this sort of new de novo mutation is becoming more and more thought to be involved in autism. So if you're fascinated with these results, join the club. We have organized a webinar with Dr. LaSalle in May, and we'll keep you posted. She's going to be talking about lots of research studying gene-environment interactions using brain tissue, and specifically this finding. And as always, if you want to support this type of research that looks at the brains of people with autism, register for the Autism BrainNet at www.takesbrains.org. You're not obligating yourself to anything. You're just registering to learn more. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next week.